0: If you grab your Bibles, head to John chapter 4. It's really important that you have a Bible in front of you. We must remind ourselves always that it is the Word of God that has authority to speak into our lives, into every aspect of our lives. So it's important that you have God's Word before you because it is through God's Word that I have authority to preach, and therefore it is God's Word. I want before you. So you're heading to John chapter 4, Gospel of John's in the New Testament. If you're brand new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're using a church chair Bible, it is page 944. Page 944. Just as you turn there, I'll be praying now for our time together that the Lord will indeed refresh us. Father, we thank you for the worship songs we have already sung for the reminder that the gospel is indeed our hope in life and death. Father, we pray that as we now turn to your word, that you would refresh us, that you would renew us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that you would set in us a flame that is so strong, so powerful, that we would indeed take your gospel, not just to our streets, not just to our city, but to the nation's. And so, Father, I pray this in your glorious name. Amen. Now, have you ever experienced a wanted change in your life only to find out later that it was quite disappointing? Uh, Let me give you some examples. Uh, Maybe for some of the teenagers in the room, you've started learning to drive. Maybe you're already there and you've got your license. And this excitement is that you get to drive wherever you want now until you find out you're now responsible for the gas bill for every journey you do. Or maybe you're a young adult, you've moved into your first rental apartment, maybe you've even bought your first home, and you have that wanted change. You now have a dishwasher. You are never going to have to wash dishes again, until you find out that dishwashers do not load or unload themselves. In our house, only I get to load and unload the dishwasher. Or maybe you're a family and you've had that wanted change where you now have children at home. You're excited at the joy and the privilege that is to parent children until you find out that you will never have a full night's sleep again. Or maybe the whole other end of the spectrum, you're heading towards retirement You might even already be there, that wanted change of being able to down tools, not head to the office on Monday morning, relax, chill out, visit the family, go on travels, until you find out about usually a month later that you're really bored and you really wish that you had a job to go to. All the retired people, none of you are laughing because you're like, that's not not true, that's not true. Friends, you see, hope for change in our lives is often disappointing. There's often a catch that we don't really truly understand until we've experienced that change. And I want to tell you this morning that it is not so with Jesus, that there is no catch, there is no disappointment, that when he brings change in our lives, we never regret it. Not like all these circumstances and the many more you can think of. In Jesus, not only do we have all things changed, but we have all things joy inexpressible. That is how Peter describes it in his letter. That it is joy inexpressible to know Jesus. It is so ridiculously life-changing, so ridiculously joyful that we can't even explain it in words It is joy inexpressible. From our lives on earth to our position before God, all the way to everlasting life in the eternal realm, the change that Jesus brings in our lives when we meet him, when we know his love, is never disappointing. And I want you to know this joy today. I want you to be refreshed in it, renewed in it, to know that the redemption we find in Christ Jesus is life-altering and never disappointing. So if you forget everything I say today and you don't remember a single point I say, but you remember this, that Jesus changes everything and is never disappointing and there is never a catch, then you've got my sermon. So I can just finish here. In our passage today, we're going to look at one conversation. Just one conversation. That's all it took for one person's life to utterly change. We're going to walk through the text together, it's quite a large text. Uh, When I was given this date, I was wanting to preach this sermon for quite a long time. And then I looked at the text and I was like, ah, that's 42 verses. I don't quite know if I want to do that now. So we're going to do that kind of whistle-stop tour. We're going to take little chunks as we go. And I want you to pay attention to two things here. We're going to come to the end of the sermon. And we're going to look how specifically this conversation applies to our lives and our situation. So that's going to come towards the end of the sermon. Through the sermon, I want you to see this that there is a person and a life at the beginning of the conversation. And then I want you to see the same person, but a different life at the end of the conversation. We're gonna see how Jesus changes everything in one conversation. So let's jump into our text. We're gonna look at the first initial six verses of John chapter four. Follow along with me. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, the Pharisees hated both John and Jesus. So when an opportunity arose to take their respective ministries against each other and kind of pitch them against each other, they took it. But in the wisdom of Jesus, and this often happens as we travel through the gospel, Jesus is aware of what's happening and wanting nothing to do with this kind of manufactured competition between him and John, he departed from the region His destination was Galilee, due north from Judea. And he had three options for this journey. He could head west to the coast and journey north by the Mediterranean Sea. Or he could head east and journey north going along the Jordan River. Or he could head due north passing right through the main cities of Samaria. Now most Jews would have went east or west, the first two options, because the Jews and the Samaritans... Were enemies. Even though the journey would have been shorter, about three days going right due north, right through the middle, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans meant most people went east or west. It's noted in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's not just that he had to because he had to go up to Galilee and therefore Samaria was in the way, but rather he had a divine appointment. I want you to note those words, divine appointment, because we're going to see about that in the conversation. And he had to take this central route to meet that divine appointment. So Jesus journeys with his disciples, arriving in Sychar about the sixth hour which is about midday, the hottest part of the day. I was trying to figure out a way to explain how hot it was. And the only thing I can think of is just imagine a Scotsman in America at 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the middle of summer. I don't know if it's hard for you to imagine that. It's easy for me to imagine that. It's hot. This is Texas hot we're talking about here. Cultural engagement. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Weary from his travels. Jesus stops and he sits down by Jacob's well and takes a rest. Now, Jacob's well is mentioned in the Old Testament several times. is on the land Jacob bought in Genesis 33 and it's where Jesus, uh, sorry Joseph was buried as mentioned in Joshua 24. It was significant for the Jewish people. Specific mention of this well is gonna come up multiple times in this passage. There is no chance that this was by chance that Jesus was there. But for now, I want you to notice something. Notice the humanity of Jesus. He was tired from his journey. We must never forget that Jesus is the God-man. He is all-powerful to defeat sin and death. And he is the one that can sympathize with us in our daily struggles. He knows what it means to toil during the day. He knows what it means to feel exhausted. He knows what it means to need rest. And that's how we can draw comfort from knowing Jesus because Jesus knows us. He knows what it means to go through these things. So here is Jesus, tired from a long journey at the hottest part of the day, sitting at the well, needing rest. Let's continue, verse seven. Look in your own Bibles and follow along with me a woman of Samaria came to draw water give me a drink Jesus said to her because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food how is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me a Samaritan woman she asked for Jews do not associate with Samaritans Now, there are several unusual elements in these verses. I'm going to try and pick through each one of them. At first, we have the disciples who go into Sychar to purchase food. Now, before Jesus, get this, before Jesus, they would have avoided this Samaritan town. They wouldn't have even journeyed this way. They would have went east or west. But now they have met Jesus, they go into town, into a Samaritan town to buy food, The second thing I want you to see is that we have a Samaritan woman coming to the well about midday, the hottest part of the day. Highly unusual. First of all, it was normal to gather water first thing in the morning or last thing at night, the coolest parts of the day. It was also normal to gather water at the well within the town or city itself. This well is about half mile trek outside of the city. So there's an oddity here. Why is she not going the normal of the day and why is she not going to the normal well? Lodge that in your brains because we're getting at a hint here that her status in our local area is different. She's likely an outcast or at least at the very minimum not welcome to do the normal ways of life. Yet the most significant oddity I want you to see here is that Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman asking her for a drink The woman is surprised, we should be surprised. The woman is surprised giving two reasons why this is unusual. Firstly, Jesus was a Jew and there is a long running history between the Jews and the Samaritans. 750 years prior to this interaction, Samaria was invaded by the Assyrians with the result that the Jews and the Gentiles were mixing in that area and marrying. It was deemed that they had lost their Jewishness by doing so. The feud deepens about 400 years prior to this conversation when the Samaritans offer to rebuild the temple, at least to help with it, and they were rejected because they were not Jewish, even though historically they were. By the time Jesus was on the scene, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, kind of like the chiefs and the eagles. That's our household issue. I support the chiefs, so you can figure out who supports the eagles. (laughs) A Jew talking to a Samaritan and a Jew asking a Samaritan for anything is completely unheard of. But what is even more extreme in this oddity is that Jesus was speaking to a woman. See, rabbis were forbidden to speak to women in public. Even looking at a woman in public was frowned upon. Yet in this interaction, what we see is Jesus dispensing with social customs for the sake of a lost soul. Jesus uses this moment of his humanity, his moment of need, his need to rest and to drink to show this woman great levels of compassion and mercy. The outcast finds a friend in Jesus. The psalmist says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. When I was working through this passage and I was thinking about our own church, I was thinking, I wonder if the outcast finds a friend in me. I wonder if the outcast finds a friend in you. I wonder if the outcast finds a friend in this church. Jesus draws close to the broken hearted and is a friend to the outcast. Let's continue in verse 10. Jesus answered if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you give me a drink you would ask him and he would give you living water sir said the woman you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep so where do you get this living water you aren't greater than our father Jacob are you he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock now notice here how Jesus responds to the woman She says, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. Why are we having this conversation? But Jesus doesn't debate with her the social customs. They're obvious. He doesn't need to debate them with her. Instead, he takes the woman to the matter of living water. The term living water is known as the messianic claim that the Messiah will come and be the one that quenches the thirst of his people. It is the gift of God that those seeking him will never need to draw anything for themselves because he will provide all that is required. Through Jesus, the, the thirst for relationship with God will be fully quenched. And so this living water that Jesus is speaking about is spiritual. It is through Christ that salvation will be brought and it will glorify the Father. It reminds me of Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages. And this is what Philippians 2 says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. See that, humanity. He knows that we suffer. He understands our needs. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And get this, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the living water who brings glory to the Father. It is through Jesus that one is brought life. And what Jesus is saying is, you're talking about water, I'm talking about life. Yet notice in our passage how the woman takes Jesus literally. Rather than spiritually, she's thinking practically. How could Jesus give her living water when he has nothing to get water from this deep well? This well that's about 100 feet deep. How can he get water? Jacob dug this water. He got living water, but what she's meaning is practical. He was able to drink from it himself and give it to the livestock. Does Jesus have a, a different stream or well? Is somehow he able to produce something that is better than the celebrated Jacob? You see, this is how we often approach Jesus. We think about things practically. Jesus, these are my needs practical usually. Jesus shows up in these practical ways. We often forget the spiritual nature of our faith in Christ, that our trials, our needs often have spiritual weight to them. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pause there. Again, Jesus is speaking of living water as being spiritual. He is speaking of knowing God, as it says in Revelation 7, 17, for the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of waters of life. Or Revelation 21, 6, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Are you gathering right now that Jesus is talking about something spiritual, not practical? Jesus brings life that overflows to the point of eternal life. He's not speaking of physical sustenance, although he gives that, but eternal satisfaction. And in response, the woman does what we all do. She's still seeking for her physical situation. She does not want to keep coming back to this well. And who would turn down such an offer as water that quenches the thirst and you would never need to go to this well again? You see, the issue of mankind is that we want our physical comforts to be provided for. And so we often miss the spiritual nature of how God is taking us through those trials. Anyone that's gone through any significant trial in their life and followed it with Jesus will know that at the other end, they look back and see how God grew their faith throughout it. But at the beginning of the trial, we forget. Verse 16. "'Go call your husband,' he told her, "'and come back here.' "'I don't have a husband,' she answered. "'You have correctly said, "'I don't have a husband,' Jesus said. "'For you've had five husbands, "'and the man you now have is not your husband. "'What you have said is true.'" Jesus abruptly changes the subject. The conversation was about water and about spiritual nature of life, and how suddenly he goes to the woman's marital status. Uh, Catherine Booth, the co-founder of the Salvation Army, said this, if we are to better the future, we must disturb the present. Jesus was not simply having a conversation. He was offering life to a woman dead in our sin, and he had to abruptly disturb the present. To bring about that better future, he had to interrupt this conversation and get to the point He had to interrupt and point out that not only is this woman without her current husband, she's with another man, but she has had five husbands. Now, there is a lot of debate out there if you read commentaries, about 50-50 about what this is meaning. I can tell you that there is a hint, and we'll see it later on, there is a hint that her situation is sinful. There are some commentators that would argue that it is not And it's simply, we're not told the information. Maybe her five husbands had all passed away. I want to be clear as we walk through this passage, that it's fairly obvious that this is a sinful situation. More will come to light as we continue. I want you to notice how this information came about though. It was not freely given by the woman. There was no conversation prior. Jesus knew all about this woman and all about her life. And he shows her great mercy in saying, I know it. You don't need to tell me. You don't need to tell me the details because I know it. If you've ever been caught in a sinful situation, you know how shameful it feels to describe your sin to another. And Jesus in mercy says, you don't need to do that. I know what you're going through. Obviously, we don't know the exact circumstance of this situation, but Jesus does. With her sin laid bare before her, the opportunity for new life is beginning to be primed. In a recent equipping group class, I spoke on the gospel starting where we all start, the gospel for sinners. It is good news that the sinner can be removed from their dark hole of evil and placed in the light of Christ's righteousness. The woman at the well is slowly being lifted from the dark place to the light place slowly but surely I have life for you but what about my physical need I have life for you but what about my physical need well what about your sin I have life for you Jesus is slowly lifting her from darkness I wonder has Jesus done that with you has he slowly lifted you from darkness has he disturbed your present to remind you that there is a better future for you Romans 8 28 says, we know that all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I want you to see in this verse, it is not that all things are good. It is that all things will work to good for us. Friends, is Jesus disturbing your present for the sake of your better future? I want to be clear, we're not talking prosperity gospel. I don't think you're all going to win massive amounts of money and move house and all this sort of stuff. I'm talking about is Jesus showing you your sin right now so that he can bring you to the light. Let's keep going. We've got lots to still go in our passage. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, just pause there a second. I love how polite she is. This is a Samaritan talking to a Jew, a Samaritan talking to a teacher, a rabbi in her eyes. Sir, maybe we need to bring that back in into our society, but sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship What we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now notice the change that has started to occur in the woman. The woman has gone from being surprised by this initial encounter to shifting her thought about Jesus. She is recognizing that Jesus is no ordinary man. Her question also hints to a change of heart. Worship was actively done at this time through sacrifice. So where should she sacrifice? On the mountain of her people or the mountain of the Jews? You see, the Samaritans had, in history altered things a little bit, noting that God had wanted them to worship on Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. In her view, she must now sacrifice for her sin, but not in the same manner as the Jews. And this is where we're seeing this deep rift, and we need to note this deep rift to understand the changes that are happening in this conversation. The Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, but not the rest. So the Jews accused the Samaritans of worship out of fear rather than adoration to the, their heavenly father. The Samaritans were almost superstitious about their sacrifices. So for the woman to ask where to worship was for her to ask, where am I meant to sacrifice for the sin that you're declaring? And in response, Jesus teaches that God is spirit. He is not limited to things, nor is he limited to places. Any sacrifices that she can give are wholly inadequate. True worship is to worship in spirit and truth, to obey, to love, to surrender your life to the Lord. And I really hope you get this this morning. Our Lord and his ministry is not limited to this room. It is not limited to things and places. He's not limited to the ways that we think he will operate in. He is the limitless God. Within his perfect righteousness, he will do what he will do and we can't box him into any other way. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. Notice that change. Who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It is staggering that Jesus, in this moment of history, in this moment of his ministry, and to a Samaritan woman of all people, declares that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one who would change everything for joy inexpressible. It was not by chance that Jesus was meeting this woman. He is the shepherd and he has purposely journeyed into enemy territory to find this lost sheep. There was no sales pitch, no oddity to his language, just Jesus, simply Jesus, full of compassion, full of gentleness, bringing this woman to the truth. You see, there can be no conversion without conviction, but conviction does not need to be harshly pushed for. The woman was not a project. She was a real hurting person and Jesus was winsome, showing her that the answer to all of her questions is in him. And all this culminated in this wonderful display of Jesus's glory. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God. Our girls have been heading to GAs on Wednesday nights and they do memory verses. And they're to, to bring a memory verse with them, learn a memory verse during the week. And it was funny in our household, you know, the obvious ones come up. You know, Genesis 1-1, nice and easy. We did talk about Jesus wept, but we decided that was not one that you should Used as a memory verse, too easy. And also, we know John three sixteen, don't we? As many Christians do. John three sixteen is almost the core of our faith. Now, I'm not bashing these verses, but I want to see if you know John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus was not here to condemn this woman. He was there to save her. And it was moments like this that he steps into people's life and he says, In me there is life. In me there is hope. In me there is waters that run of streams that are so beyond your imagination. And I know all of your sin. He came to be the answer to our sin problem. And in doing so, he brings glorious victory over it. Let's keep going, verse 27. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. The disciples return from gathering their food and their various things they need in the city and are staggered to see that Jesus is interacting with a woman. Clearly, they're shocked because there's no interaction. At least that's the best option you can give. The worst option is the disciples probably have a disdain towards her. We then read she leaves the jar. Remember, she's trekked half a mile to get water. She leaves the jar and heads into Sychar. She's likely leaving the jar because she's in a rush. We'll come into that in a moment. But also because she was planning to return to Jesus. But right now, this is the moment that this whole interaction has been building towards. She goes and tells all she can find about the man who changed everything in her life by knowing all things. And her question of Jesus Christ being the Messiah has been asked and answered Jesus has already declared to her what the truth is, that he is the one sent by God for the sake of sinners. See how the woman was gently confronted with her sin. She is amazed by Jesus and having discovered a joy inexpressible, she goes. She is compelled to run to the city and tell everyone about him. The shame she once felt is gone. She is consumed by the knowledge of who Jesus is. She no longer desires for herself. All she wants is for people to know Jesus. Life had changed and it would never be the same again. Just one conversation, that's all that was needed for this woman. Do you see it? That just one conversation with Jesus changes everything. Do you see the reality now that she is forever changed? She's met our Lord. She knows that he knows and she's no longer full of shame. Now, for the sake of time, as I mentioned, 42 verses is quite a lot. Um, So for the purpose of this sermon, I want us to head to verse 39. Uh, Jesus had some interaction with his disciples. He explains the kingdom a little bit further, but the interaction with the woman continues in verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him and they stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said and they told the women, we no longer believe because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world. Do you see the change? Do you see a woman shamed by her sin and now do you see what's happened? The gospel has changed everything. And we see three stages of gospel sharing experienced by the Samaritans. First, they're introduced to Jesus by the woman. This personal experience reminds us of Romans ten fourteen. How then can they call on him they have not believed in and how can they believe without hearing about him? she told them about Jesus. Secondly, they grew in their knowledge of Jesus. They go to him, they invite him to stay. And during this time, more and more knowledge comes about of Christ and they are shown great mercy and compassion. And then thirdly, they totally surrender their lives to Jesus. Their faith is no longer because of the woman. Their faith is because they have come to Jesus. They find a savior in Christ. Do you see the magnitude of this whole passage? One conversation that completely disregards social customs. One conversation with a woman that Jesus should never have spoken to. The sworn enemy of the Jews. A woman of all people. One conversation. That's all it took for this entire area to change. That's the simplicity of the gospel, folks. Those who seek will find more than they can ever imagine. Now, I did say we would bring it a bit home for us now. And so having worked through the passage together, it's really important that we ensure that we don't just have understanding because then this is just a teaching session and you go home with a little bit more understanding. In other words, when life continues in all of its normality tomorrow morning, Monday morning, how does this passage help us to know Jesus more, live for him more, and be daily transformed by the gospel? And so with this in mind, I just have two things. Two things that I think are simple yet profound that apply to each one of us today here in this church. Here's the first. Jesus changes how we view ourselves and how we view him. Jesus changes how we view ourselves and how we view him. We started this passage with a woman shamed by her sin. She is cast out alone, tired of life. One conversation with Jesus and our outlook completely changes. She's no longer ruled by a sinful past, nor is she ashamed by what she once was. She is renewed. She is refreshed. She is overjoyed and she is known by the one that we call the Christ. As you sit here today, how do you view yourself? Have you had another disappointing week? You've given in to that tendency to sin. Do you feel ashamed, unloved, unwanted, condemned? Do you sit in this church and feel disconnected? Maybe even you're looking around and thinking, everyone else has friends, but I don't. Maybe your very soul is downcast today. Friends, just as Jesus walked through enemy territory for the sake of one soul, he went to the cross in pursuit of you. Our Lord sees your tendency to sin. He knows the shame you carry, and in great mercy, he says, No longer. No longer will you be defeated by sin. No longer will you feel alone in this world. No longer will you feel shamed by your past. With immense love for you, he went to that cross. He took God on his shoulders, dying a cruel death. And get this, and I need you to pay attention here, he burst out of the tomb declaring to you right now that you can have victory over your sin. Because Through Jesus, you will no longer live in shame. You will no longer live in condemnation. Through faith in him, you will no longer be who you were. You will be a child of God. You will be a co-heir to the throne. You will be loved. You will be welcomed. You will be wanted. And that is through Jesus. So when Monday morning comes knocking, I want you to wake up and I want you to look squarely at Jesus. See his love for you. See how he looks upon you with warm, joyous, compassionate eyes. I guarantee you, you are gonna mess it up this week. I guarantee you that if the Chiefs lose, that's where you're gonna mess it up this week. But I want you to come to Jesus again and again and again and again for his grace, his mercy, his love for you never diminishes. Know that in Jesus, everything has changed. Don't look to your mess. Look to the friend of sinners. That's why the apostle Paul said, rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice because you were dead in your sins. That's not you now if you know Jesus. You're now alive in Christ. So don't look on last week's mistakes and beat yourself up. Look to Jesus and rejoice that you have a life to the full and in his arms you are eternally secure. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're asking yourself, I want a little bit of what was making him shout so much today. I want that joy. I want that joy inexpressible. I want to know what it feels like to know that I am secure for eternity. I want to get rid of this shame, this this sin that is plaguing me. Wonderfully, Peter was asked the same question in Acts 2. And his response was this, repent And be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. Now is the day that we place our sin on Jesus. Now is the day we turn to him and see this wonderful, compassionate, arms opening, beckoning us to come in. Now is the day to know that the promise said here in Acts 2 is for you. Jesus has not come to condemn you, but he's came to save you from the pain of sin, the pain of guilt of that sin, and the misery of that sin that it takes you to. Look nowhere else for joy inexpressible, friends, because it will always disappoint. There will always be a catch, but not so with Jesus. Do you see how Jesus changes, how we view ourselves, how we view him? Which brings me on to my final point. Jesus changes how we view others. Jesus changes how we view others. After the woman at the well met Jesus, she could not wait to tell others. She ran straight back into the city in the heat of the day. Remember, this is midday, the heat of the day, the hottest part. Think about running half a mile in Texas in the middle of the summer. Cultural engagement not going so well now. (laughs) She has no water with her, she's left her jar behind. And she went and told everyone she could find about Jesus. Through her joy of meeting Jesus, countless others meet him. Martin Luther, the great reformer wrote, if he has faith, the believer cannot be restrained. He betrays himself, he breaks out, he confesses and teaches this gospel to the people at the risk of life itself. The woman risked what little comfort she had left. She risked it all to tell others the good news of Jesus. She could not be silenced because they had to be told. Others had to know about Jesus. Now, let's get a little bit real with one another this morning. I think for many of us, we no longer live in this way. The gospel has become something we academically believe, experienced in our weekly church attendance, even discussed at our community groups. For many, we've lost the joy inexpressible of knowing Jesus. And hear me right. I'm not saying the gospel has changed. I'm saying we have changed. We don't run back from the well to the city. We trudge back, having lost this joy, hoping we don't see anybody. Because if we do see somebody, we're now going to have to feel guilty because we're not going to share the gospel with them. We put our heads down. We get on with our lives and we try to avoid sharing the gospel. I'm of the generation that everyone has AirPods in their ears all day long, which means there is no opportunity to talk with people, to tell them about Jesus because you're busy listening to things yourself. We spend our days in Christian huddles knowing no unsaved people, except the one person that we randomly bumped into that we probably never will bump into again. And we wonder why we're not seeing a wave of salvations when our heads are down, our ears are full, And we're no longer joy inexpressible. Friends, the answer to any form of weak, apathetic, pitiful pitiful response to evangelism is not, get this, guilt, condemnation or any form of fancy new ministry. Rather, it is to renew our own joy inexpressible in Jesus, to be truly broken that others do not know that joy. You see, outside of these walls in our community, there are still people who are alone, who are condemned. They're still without hope. They still sit dead in their sin daily, and they are still going to hell. The world sends up flares, hoping that someone will come and rescue them. But where are the heroes of the joyous faith? Who's going out trudging through the darkness to that ever diminishing light, saying, I will bring you the gospel. I will tell you of the one who can save you. Who is reaching their hand out to that ever diminishing flare and saying, grab my hand, I will take you to Jesus. He will change everything for you. Friends, here's the beauty of our position today. Today, because Jesus changes everything, he can change our view of others. He can put in our hearts a deep passion for the lost. He can take the great commission and make it our joy and privilege. He can change the number of souls saved through the ministry of this church. He can renew us, refresh us, and bless us in this church by dramatically changing the lives of those we're around. Just as Jesus has a divine appointment with this woman, it is by no chance we are called Liberty Baptist. We have a divine appointment. Friends, there's people in the streets just across the road from our church who do not know the friend of sinners. The residents of Manor Lane, Eastwood Lane, Georgia Lane, South Skyline Drive, Grant Avenue, Prairie Street, Prairie Court, Prairie Terrace, Jackson Avenue all need to know that Jesus changes everything. The question is are you going to be like the woman at the well? Are you going to run and tell them? In the passage today, Jesus traveled from Jerusalem to Judea and into Samaria to reach this one woman. In Acts 1.8, Jesus commands his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Folks, this is no joke task from Jesus. He did it himself. He went to the woman at the well and now he calls us to go into these streets and to tell people that I know someone that knows everything about you and he won't condemn you, he will love you and he will take you to his father. John Wesley founder of early Methodism, declared, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. I care not whether they are clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Friends, my time is up, so I'm going to close and finish with a reworded specific application of this quote. Give Jesus the 243 members of Liberty Baptist Church. Let them fear sin and desire nothing but God. We care not whether you are confidently experienced or taking your first steps into evangelism. We alone are tasked with reaching this area and through the power of Jesus, we will shake the gates of hell and see the kingdom of God right here, right now, expand exponentially. Friends, if you haven't figured it out yet, Jesus changes how we view ourselves. He changes how we view our heavenly father and he changes how we view others. And to live in this way is joy inexpressible. My prayer is that you would have that joy and that God would use this church mightily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises in it. We thank you that in Acts 2, we're told that we are promised salvation if we come to Christ. Father, we thank you that in John 3, 17, we're told that we're not condemned by Christ, but we are saved by him. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to go through those enemy territories and to find that one lost soul. Father, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross for us in pursuit of each one of us. We thank you so amazingly That we get to sit here and be part of the kingdom of God, child of God, co-heir to the throne, loved, wanted, redeemed, refreshed, renewed, and in full joy because Jesus did that for us. Father, I pray that we would take up the challenge, that we would be like the woman at the well and we would go to our community. We would go to the ends of the earth to tell people of the Lord and Savior who changes everything. Father, we pray that we would have joy inexpressible this week. I pray this in your glorious name, amen.